0: Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them, and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd, and this is Life on the Line. They were building positions in there. Before to us, by the time anyone got to us, I think it was chaos. The weather was so bad there would I be nobody left. And the next thing I hear was alarms, screaming. We very, very the soldiers didn't want to go into the ambushes, wow. so they wow. send nice the kids in first. It's it's so it's so he was hand hand sent hand hand in hand first hand hand it into hand hand an ambush, hand and, hand hand and hand hand he got shot in the stomach. It was very hard for me, very hard for my family. And the plane,
1: proud of the crew, proud of what I've achieved and what I'm doing. To volunteer for service was in effect to put your life on the line.
0: I spoke with Doug Symes Sr. Doug is a veteran of World War II and the Korean War. Doug served below decks, first as a stoker and then a butcher. I spoke with Doug about his upbringing, the family butchery business, his various family members' wartime experiences, and his own. This conversation is a smaller war story, but I really enjoyed hearing about Doug's family life before he actually went to war. It's a fascinating glimpse of how life was disrupted for so many ordinary Australians, families and businesses broken apart for the sake of war. I hope you enjoy the conversation. I'm Alex Lloyd, and I'm joined on Life on the Line today by Doug Symes, Senior. Thank you for joining me on the podcast, Doug. So, Doug, when and where were you born?
1: In Orroo District Hospital in the north of South Australia. I was the sixth child of Harold and Emily Symes, and uh, was born in the hospital, and my mother, she had been born in that hospital before me and it was more or less a, a family town. My mother's father, he was a railway contractor and he carted the railway supplies with the railway lines and sleepers with his horses and lorries and he come originally from Borough. In South Australia, and they'd settled up in Oraroo because that was midway between Tarawi and Corn, and that's where they decided to settle and raise a family. And uh, as I said, I was a sixth child, and I had eight sisters and one brother.
0: And you were born in 1926?
1: 26, yep.
0: Now, Doug, there is quite an extended military tradition in your family with your <laughs> uncles and brothers and oh, um, yeah. your descendants. Let's yeah. start with your father, Harold. Williams. Yeah, well,
1: when I grew up, from the day I could walk, I think I used to wear bits and pieces of my father's uniform because he was in the third Australian light horse and you've probably heard a lot in the last few weeks about Beersheba. He was in the final charge at Beersheba in the light horse and uh, he had been there and he had joined the Army, the AIF, I suppose it was in those days, in about 1916. And I've seen letters that he wrote to my mother from over in Egypt and, and apologising to Mum for bloody leaving her with the three kids and him being home over in Egypt with the Army and bloody living on the fat of the land. But uh, he enjoyed the Army life. Along the line, he he claimed his brother into the regiment and uh, his elder brother, Tom, was killed at the Battle of Romani and they were three light horsemen. And from the day I could bloody stand, I was army. Every time I went up past a drill, I used to salute it, you know, even as a little fella. And then, of course, later on, war came, and uh, my brother, before the war, he was a, a member of the 9th 23rd Light Horse, and that was their headquarters was in Oruru, and Dad more or less made sure Jack joined the Light Horse, and Jack wasn't a horseman but it didn't take him long and uh, he moved himself up in the light horse. He was a sergeant, platoon leader and everything and uh, when they went to camps and everything he was among the the kingpins in the camps and of course they used to run their, their military sports in those days, you know with the light horse I you know? used to put the horses over the jumps and everything and everybody get, went there and I know whatever whatever bits and pieces of army that I could see I wore whether it was a colour patch or a hat or a whip or something but to me that was the light horse was everything. I was a horse mad because across the road there was a, a horse trainer and uh, he used to come and get me and I used to go over and help him with the with his training and his horses and that probably more of a hindrance than a, a bloody help but I was there because my life was horses and the army. Of course the next thing what what came along. I, I was pretty good at school, I'll, I'll have to tell you that. Too. And my father wanted me educated and to go to college and everything. And uh, when I got a bit older, I was expected to help in the business because we were bushers. And uh, as far back as I could remember, there was something to do with the business either going to school or coming home from school, pick up the sheep for the afternoon's kill and then put the sheep back in the overnight paddock and things like that. And when I'd go home, it would be dark because in those days before refrigeration, with the meat you used to have to kill after the sun went down, because you just had to battle the bloody blafly, and then your meat was left out over, and you, you went home and, and did all your chores at home, and, and the first thing I did when I got home was make sure the horses were fed to go into the catch in the morning so the men could be there. The chooks were fed, and the worst bloody thing of the lot, the cows had to be milked. And that was so mum could get on with the business of the milk and everything. And uh, I used to get to school from there. After I got a bit older, I suppose about 10 or 11, one day my father said to me, I think I can get you a pushpot because we didn't have pushpots. No one had money to buy any in it. But the old man saw somebody with a second man bike, and he said, if I got you that bike, he said, could you do a round before you went to school and take the orders and everything? Be the delivery boy. Yeah. People didn't have refrigerators, you see, and they wanted their meat for lunch and then again, I'd want meat for dinner at night time, but I was not having fridges, so I had to have the one delivery a day. That went on and went on, and of course, as things, things improved and I got older, I was. You're seconded down to the slaughter yards, you know. I used to, have to take the stock in for the day's kill, and then after a while, it wasn't very long, and I was into the kill, and I became a slaughterman. And even at a very young age, I was a proficient slaughterman. Still at school, mind you, I was fifteen. My mother said, "Well, your father is very ill." I'd know he'd had a stroke and he wasn't very well, wasn't getting anywhere. She said, we got to be very careful and with them. And anyhow, the next day I got home and my father had died. And of course, we had the business and uh, someone had to run the business for mum at, at wartime. And the young men had been called up to go to the buddy into the army and what have you and uh, i was put into the shop i finished school at, at 12 o'clock and i started work in the shop at one o'clock
0: how did you feel about that not getting to complete your education fully were you okay with that or were you just uh, to the
1: family my business? my gracious, thing was to be with my mother and help her and my eldest sister because I felt that I was the person that was needed in the shop. Although I was only 15, I was proficient. I could do the shop work and I would do the small goods and the slaughtering and the local policeman wasn't around. I used to drive the truck around doing the delivery.
0: So you're a slaughterman at 14, 15 years old and you're surrounded by death, blood and guts of animals at such a young age. Do you think that desensitised you to death and did it prepare you for the war that you were yet to fight in?
1: Well, blood and guts didn't worry me, if that's what you mean. If people got in my way, it was just bad luck on their behalf.
0: I think that answers my question. (laughs) Now let's um, talk about... Your brother, Jack, he also fought in World War II. So before we get to your yep. story, Doug, your brother, Jack, he fights in the 9th Cavalry Division and yep. before transferring to the commandos.
1: Yeah, finished up with the, the 9th Cavalry Commandos. I've got him uh,
0: down here serving in Egypt, Syria, Palestine, Basel of El Alamein, Balak Papan. Yeah. Can you tell me a bit about his war experiences from what you know? It sounds like an amazing well, story. Well, uh,
1: they went out. In his first trip over, or his initial trip overseas, they went up and they fought through Syria. And uh, he was in the uh, the Ninth of Cavalry. And in those days, that was consisted of Bren gun carriers. You know the Bren gun carriers.
0: Can you describe them for the listener who might not know?
1: Oh, they were like a, a little Bren gun carrier. He wasn't much bigger than the ordinary farm tractor, and he was armed with Bren guns, and Bren guns were the machine gun of that era, and uh, very accurate. And these people, they used to scoot around the desert like bloody kids in a motor car, you know, and they got out, and because of their size and mobility, they could get into the hills around Syria and everywhere, and they came back down through Tripoli and Beirut, and then they came back and they and they went went out into the desert. They were fought and trained in the desert.
0: Your brothers fighting Rommel at this stage.
1: Oh yes old Robin and then, and uh, Jack with his mop. I think at that stage he was a captain, and he used to run the, run the show a bit. And then I remember one morning, 1942, it must have been the end of October, and the advertiser had said there that the Battle of Alameiners, they were led into battle. I let it, Captain Harry Sean of Oroo and, God, that just lifted me so bloody high. And the whole town, you know, and uh, they still had an army component in the town. From there on, Brother Jack, was the toast of to the town.
0: I can imagine seeing your brother, Harold Symes, who obviously goes by the name Jack, and seeing him read out as... The heroic officer leading the charge against the Africa Corps would be such a huge pride for the town, for your family. And does that inspire you then the following year, 1943, to join the Royal Australian Navy?
1: I reckon I would have followed Jack every step in my life from two years old and whatever he did, I was there. When he was in the light horse as an 18-year-old, I just got made my job was to polish the harness for his horses (laughs) and make sure everything was bloody done and that's it but your brother
0: yeah he's a light horseman and then um cavalry division
1: well they changed uh, changed from right horse to cavalry cavalry, yes
0: um but they they scrap the light horse go to cavalry but he's in the army you follow him every step of the way throughout your life you've grown up Admiring your father for his yep. charge at Beersheba, your older brother's now a hero of the army. Yeah. Why do you instead go to the navy?
1: Aha! Uh-huh. Now you're getting down to why I'm here. See, I told you I was working in the butcher shop. I had to leave school the day I was 14. And my sister used to use me in the butcher shop. And her manager and sorterman of got called up. And I was more or less a uh, boy in the shop anyhow there was an area officer down in tarawi and an army area officer and he used to look after and try to recruit all the people he could but for his army and what he wanted he always come up to my sister and he used to say to her because we were under manpower restrictions and he reckoned she was carrying one bloke too much in the business. So when she got a chance or got heard that this character was coming around, she knew she had contact. She used to second me to the uh, drover. I told her he was a horseman, a horse trainer that lives with us. And because butchers were a protected industry, protected industry, and so was drivers were a protected industry, and uh, she used to hear that this character was around, and she used to duck shop me for one. Sometimes I'd be away for six weeks or more, so this this bloke wouldn't want me.
0: But you're you're doing that in the interest of protecting the family business and keeping it going. Yeah.
1: And she was, she's a wonderful girl. And anyhow, then we get to the stage, as you say, how do I want to get to know you? Well, all the blokes that I'd gone to school with and worked with, they were all about a year uh, ahead of me. And uh, I don't know whether I was ahead of them or they were behind me, but they were getting called up and were in the army. And, of course, I didn't want to be stuck at home where there's nobody there, sir. And, and there it is. And one day somebody showed me a Peter paper and they said, hey, if you want to bloody join up, look at that. You can get into the Navy at 17 i worked on this, and uh, I was only a few months away from my 17th birthday. I said to my mum, you know, I think I'll join the, the Merchant Navy. And she said, no, she said, don't join the Merchant Navy. She said, you join the Royal Australian Navy, because the war will probably be over in a month or two. We wished. <laughs> and that. Uh, she said, that'll be all over. So anyhow, started off, I did my basic training from Torrance, went to Cerberus and went back to Torrance after I'd done the basic. And uh, I was in a couple of smaller ships in these nation vessels around Torrance. And one day the engineer said to me, he said, hey, he said, I've got a ship for you. Next morning he come and then he said to me, Go and pack your bag and hammock, he said, and get down to Beryl 2. She's sailing tomorrow. And away I went. And away uh, that started me, being a stoker on the ship. And away we went, and we went up to Port Moresby. We became the examination office a ship up in Port Moresby.
0: HMAS Beryl II was a civilian vessel, built in 1914, and was requisitioned by the Royal Australian Navy just days after war broke out in September 1939. Beryl II began its war as an auxiliary minesweeper. From January 1944 to April 1945, she served in Port Moresby as a boomgate vessel. This meant that Beryl II was an auxiliary ship controlling and defending the port by means of anti-torpedo or anti-submarine steel nets. Doug also recalls Beryl II serving as an examination vessel.
1: In had ships of all nations used to come into the harbour, and before they came in, they were met by an examination officer. And their papers were corrected and they were certified either to come in or go out. That was the examination. They had underwater cables to stop ships coming in. And we used to have to open the gate to let ships come in and out.
0: How are you feeling about this deployment? Because Japan's well into the war by now, and their notoriety and the fear of them reaching Australia. I mean, they've done it with midget subs and bombing Darwin by this point. How do you feel being getting that close to the action and the front line almost of our efforts against Japan? Were you nervous or...?
1: The thing was, you wasn't an individual. You was part of a team and everybody pulled together if you know what I mean. There were times at night you'd you'd wake up and you'd think, oh, I wonder what mum's doing. I wonder if the kid, all right and things like that. But all together, and that was it. And then the next thing, the bloody bell rang for X and you forgot everything. You was all part of that, all oh, one thing.
0: You were drilled into just focus on the task at hand. Yeah
1: that Ted brought. and that was it. get it all going and we didn't have a, a lot of bad action and things like that although. We had a few coast calls, and you'd know what it was, but whatever happened, you had to get out and investigate it because you didn't know what was under the water. And we didn't have any sonar or anything like that. We just had a few guns and a couple of depth charges.
0: So you have to investigate the odd blip that comes your way and might be something, it might not be? Well,
1: you don't know. You have to know, you have to (laughs) find
0: out. Any planes as well flying overhead? Yes,
1: planes would go up. You'd, You'd have your lookouts to check them up there. I know, I see it one time there. We was in Red carbide and, and these planes were coming around and they'd been chasing a Japanese plane and and that was it. Uh, but we didn't have anything that uh, couldn't combat them, you know. So.
0: Well, after Kokoda and, and other victories, you almost have felt a bit of confidence that we can do this, we can hold the line. We held yeah, back the Germans right. at Tobruk, we held back the Japanese at Kokoda, we can do that's this. That's right. Where do you go? Are you on barrel two for the rest of the war, or do you have? Oh, uh,
1: no! But I know how they got Kokoda. My cousin, who was in the army in the 39th Battalion, that was up at Kokoda. He said I fixed him. He said I was a cook. He said that nobody got past my cooking, and he said, that's how we, got, how we beat the Japanese at cooking.
0: That's the real story, is it? Yeah.
1: And after oh, we went aground on the barrel coup when the ship's company was split up because there was a, a bit of an inquiry and they didn't know who caused the trouble or anything, and I got shot down to uh, Canberra. Changed in the meantime from a butcher to a, from a stoker to a butcher. I was there for 12 months, and then I went up to Townsville, then the war ended, and I got shot back up to New Guinea for another 12 months. And that was the end of my wartime story. But after that, I did another 20 years in the Navy.
0: Before we continue that, let's um, go back to your brother for a moment. He's will have finished his time in the Desert War and when he changes over to the commandos, is that when he's fighting at Balakpapan in 1945?
1: Yeah, yep. I'll tell the story of that if you'd like to hear that. Please. They came back and they were given the uh, orders to go up to Ravens Hope, which is outside of Cairns or whatever. And he said we were paraded there, and the general in charge. He said we've been selected to be a fighting unit. And he said I have volunteered to be a commando. Any men in the regiment that wishes to follow mine tell me you don't have to. He said, but anybody that wishes to come with me take. One step forward and the whole moved as one piece. And he said, Now we start. He said, We're commandos, we're self sufficient. See that jungle over there? That's a training ground. And we're given so many months to develop the training ground, and away we go. We're into that. And they got it down there and they trained their men to the proficiency, and then they got down to Cairns and my brother said we're all on the wharf the whole regiment's there and there's all the landing ships and barges there and he said to the boss he said now what happens now he said we've got the ships we got the men we haven't got anybody to crew the ship I said you people are self-sufficient he said you know all about navigation and everything you've got your own engineers. Get onto the ships as indicated on the program, and you take your ships up the Alek Weapon. I said there'll be a, a note on your desk. He said what to do. You'll have your instructions for the first ten hours or something, and then it gets rid of those instructions from the the Army officer He said that from there on, any you people are. In control, you're right.
0: You're self-sufficient, you're independent, here's your mission, okay. go work it out, go get it done. That's
1: dead right. And he said, as he said, you're braddy you're trained in navigation, you're engineers and everything, and, and that's how he went.
0: They do the job of a whole platoon in a one small section. Yeah, Yeah, they,
1: they did the lot, and he got up there, and that's where he finished.
0: So they were making manoeuvres through the jungle, um, ambushing Japanese positions, oh. assaults, that kind of thing?
1: yeah they could do anything buddy. and they were told they were supermen they'd been trained with that jungle training they only had about six months or something and during that time they had to clear the jungle get in get parade and everything going and then go down to the wharf and there were the ships were waiting and not a sailor in sight.
0: so let's jump back to you so you are a stoker on barrel two you then go back to our capital city Canberra as a butcher yeah. and then you finish your service um, when the war ends and go back to your civilian trade as a butcher so do you go yeah back, do you go but back to I couldn't
1: butcher? I couldn't handle that I was married by then just towards the end of the war because I got married one day and told told that I was going to see the next day anyhow I was lucky, I had a good girl and everything. And I got out after the war and I just couldn't handle it. I re-entered and uh, I I went back into Cerberus and then I went to the Melbourne.
0: What was it about civilian life you couldn't handle?
1: Oh, first of all was the money. I had sick children and the wife was like me, she was only a young... It's just one of those things. And she felt that if I wasn't there, I could provide more, more help by not being there. And she got hold of it and she looked after the kids. And without me being a drain on the bloody bank account, she was able to get on her feet.
0: So you decided it was better for you to leave and provide for the family from afar?
1: Well, I was getting a better wage by being in the Navy, you see. I tried that twice. I did did a two-year stint and and then I did another stint and and then got to the stage that the family was settled and consolidated and we were starting to get ahead and I went back to sea and I finished up, uh, I went to the Melbourne...
0: Let's um let's jump back to the fifties first. Um so when you rejoin you're aboard HMAS Sydney three yeah. and you're at the coronation of Queen Elizabeth in Yeah, London. we
1: went over there. We went over there to see Lizzie crowned and everything.
0: What uh role were you on the Sydney at that time?
1: Oh well I was the ship's butcher. The sailors and upper m up then back. People were the ones that were used for uh, street lining parties and things like that. But the, uh, the other people, you know, we had to be there to feed them and everything. So that cut the skeleton right down to the skeleton staff. And uh, that meant that there were, you know, only a, a few of everything. And uh, we, we had to fill in and make sure that everything was done.
0: That must be quite something, though, to be at the coronation of Britain's longest-serving monarch, and she's born... When is she born compared to you?
1: She was born 18 days later.
0: So you're basically the same age... ..and you've watched her be the monarch... Sort
1: of, yeah. Sort of her whole career.
0: How's that been, watching that over...
1: Oh, that's all part of the act, I tell you. It gets me. And, of course, we... Although we didn't feature in the march or anything, there were other places and things that we went to during the coronation ceremony.
0: And then after the coronation, you find yourself at Korea?
1: Yeah, and why we went up there.
0: That is part of my conversation with Doug Symes Sr. We also spoke about the Korean War, Doug's son who followed in his footsteps, and the rest of Doug's life on the sea. But I'm saving that for a future special episode. Make sure that you're subscribed to the podcast to find out more later this year. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Life on the Line Podcast, and on Twitter at L-O-T-L-Pod. Email us at podcast at lifeonthelinepodcast.com and visit our website, www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. My thanks go to the HMAS Sydney and Vietnam Logistical Support Veterans Association and the Frankston Naval Memorial Club for making this episode possible. Special thanks in particular go to Dr John Carroll and David Dwyer. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design, music by Dan Van Workhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget.